Chapter 6 of Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England by Charles H. Firth. Chapter 6 Marston Moor, 1644 As yet neither party had decidedly gained the upper hand, though the tide seemed setting against the Parliament. Both parties, therefore, looked outside England for allies, one to make its success complete, the other to regain what it had lost. The King turned to Ireland, and to the army there, which, with little support from the Parliament, was striving to put down the rebellion. On September 15, 1643, Ormond, the Lord Lieutenant, concluded a cessation of arms with the rebels, and was able to send several regiments of experienced soldiers to the King's assistance during the following month. The English Puritans turned to their brethren in Scotland. In September, the Solemn League and Covenant pledged the two nations to unite for the reformation of religion according to the word of God and the example of the best reformed churches. In November, the Scottish Parliament agreed to send 21,000 men to the assistance of the English parliamentarians. In January 1644, Alexander Leslie, now Earl of Leven, crossed the Tweed with the promised army. The campaign of 1644 opened badly for the King. In January, Sir Thomas Fairfax defeated Lord Byron and the King's Irish forces at Nantwich. In March, Waller defeated Hopton at Cheriton in Hampshire and frustrated his intended advance into Sussex. In April, Newcastle, after striving in vain to bar Leslie's progress in Durham, was forced to throw himself into York, where Leslie and the Fairfaxes besieged his army. In May, the forces of Waller and Essex advanced upon Oxford. The Royalists evacuated Reading and Abingdon, and Charles, fearing to be blockaded in Oxford, left the city to be defended by its garrison, and with about six thousand men made its escape to Worcester. But Essex, instead of pursuing and crushing the king's weak army as he ought to have done, delegated the task to Waller, and set out himself to recover the southwestern counties and relieve Lyme. In April, while Waller and Essex were preparing for their movement on Oxford, the army of the Eastern Association under Manchester took the field. Its first business was to reconquer Lincolnshire, the debatable land between the north and east, for Rupert's defeat of the besiegers of Newark in March 1644 had thrown Lincolnshire once more into the hands of the Royalists. On May 6th, Manchester's army recaptured Lincoln, and at the beginning of June he joined the two armies which beleaguered York 
with about 9,000 men. Of these 9,000, 3,000 were cavalry under the command of Cromwell. York held out stubbornly. Some detached forts were taken and the suburbs burnt, but an attempted assault was bloodily repulsed. At the end of June, news came that Prince Rupert, with 15,000 men, had crossed the hills from Lancashire and was marching to the relief of the city. The three generals, Leven, Fairfax and Manchester, raised the siege in order to give battle to Rupert's army. But when they assembled their forces on the south bank of the Ouse, Rupert crossed to the northern bank and reached York without striking a blow. On the morning of July 2nd, the parliamentary generals, finding themselves outmaneuvered and the resumption of the siege rendered impossible, were in full retreat to the south, when Rupert's attacks on their rear guard forced them to halt and offer battle. They drew up their army on some rising ground between Tockwith and Marston, overlooking the open moor on which the Royalists had taken their post. Between the armies, and marking the southern boundary of the moor, ran a hedge and ditch, which Rupert had lined with musketeers, and some similar obstacles strengthened the Royalist left flank. Rupert's army, reinforced by Newcastle's forces from York, numbered about 18,000 men, while the parliamentarians amounted to about 27,000, but the Royalists had the advantage of a strong defensive position and of open ground on which their cavalry could manoeuvre freely. For three hours the two armies faced each other in battle array. A few cannon shots were exchanged, but neither army advanced. The roundheads fell to singing psalms, and the royalist generals came to the belief that there would be no fighting that day. About five, the whole parliamentary line began to move forward, and Cromwell, with the cavalry forming its left wing, attacked Lord Byron and the royalist right. Cromwell had under his command all the horse and dragoons of the Eastern Association, half a regiment of Scottish dragoons, and three weak regiments of Scottish cavalry who formed his reserve. In all, not less than 4,000 men, of whom 1,000 were dragoons. The dragoons rapidly drove the royalist musketeers from the ditch and enabled the cavalry to pass it. Cromwell led the way, and with the first troops who crossed, charged the nearest regiment of royalists. His own division, says a contemporary narrative, had a hard pull of it, for they were charged by Rupert's bravest men both in front and flank. But as fast as they could form, the other troops of Cromwell's first line charged in support of their leader. Ere long the foremost regiments of the Royalists were broken, and pursuing their victory, Cromwell's men engaged the second line. In this hand-to-hand -hand combat, Cromwell was wounded in the neck by a pistol shot fired so near his eyes that it half blinded him. But, though for a short time disabled, he did not leave the field. Meanwhile Rupert himself, who had been at supper in the rear when the attack began, galloped up with fresh regiments 
and rallying his men drove back cromwell's troopers it was but a temporary check for david leslie with cromwell's second line fell on rupert's flank and the royalist cavalry was irretrievably routed sending the light scottish regiments of the reserve in pursuit of the flying cavaliers cromwell and leslie reformed their tired squadrons and halted to find out how the battle had gone in other quarters of the field tidings of disaster soon reached them and it became plain that the battle was more than half lost for the parliament sir thomas fairfax wounded and almost alone came with the news that the horse of the right wing under his command were defeated and flying his own regiment had charged with success and broken through the enemy those who should have supported him disordered by the furs and the rough ground they had to pass through to debouch upon the moor had been charged by the royalists and completely scattered the infantry of the parliamentary centre had fared little better the advance had been at first successful all along the line some guns had been taken and the ditch passed on the left manchester's foot led by major-general crawford had outflanked the infantry opposed to them and were still gaining ground in the centre lord fairfax's foot and the scottish regiments supporting them repulsed by newcastle's white-coated north countrymen and trampled down by their own flying horse were in full flight on the right the main body of the scottish infantry was hard pressed some regiments gave way as their brethren in the centre had done others maintained their ground manfully yet with the centre of the parliamentary line pierced and the cavalry of the right wing driven from the field the position of these isolated regiments exposed to attack in front and flank both seemed hopeless so thought old leaven who after striving in vain to rally the runaways gave up the day for lost and galloped for leeds lord fairfax too was carried off the field in the rout of his infantry though he returned later while goring's victorious horse pursued the fugitives or stopped to plunder the baggage sir charles lucas with another division of goring's command employed himself in attacking the scottish infantry maitland's and lindsay's regiments on the extreme right of the line stood like rocks and beat off three charges with their pikes like their ancestors at flodden and with better fortune the stubborn spearmen still made good their dark impenetrable wood each stepping where his comrade stood the instant that he fell help was now at hand sweeping across the moor behind the royalist centre cromwell and leslie came with their whole force to the relief of the scots with them too marched crawford and the three brigades of manchester's foot as they advanced lucas's horse suspended their attack and goring's men streamed back from pursuit and pillage to meet this new antagonist cromwell's cavalry now occupied the very ground where goring's men had been posted when the battle began and met them at the same place of disadvantage where sir thomas fairfax had been routed 
the struggle was short but decisive and when the last squadrons of the royalist horse were broken cromwell turned to cooperate with crawford and the scots in attacking the royalist infantry some of rupert's veteran regiments made good their retreat to york newcastle's white coats got into a piece of enclosed ground and sold their lives dearly the rest scattered and fled under cover of the protecting darkness about three thousand royalists fell in the battle while sixteen guns one hundred colours six thousand muskets and sixteen hundred prisoners were the trophies of the victors rupert left york to its fate and made his way back to lancashire with some six thousand men and the city itself surrendered a fortnight later in the dispatch which the three generals addressed to the committee of both kingdoms they gave no account of the details of the battle and made no mention of cromwell's services private letters were more outspoken one described him as the chief agent in obtaining the victory some people spoke of him as the saviour of the three kingdoms though cromwell repudiated the title with some anger the friends of the scottish army depreciated his services attributed what his cavalry achieved to david leslie and circulated reports that cromwell had taken no part in the battle after his first charge the utterances of the royalist leader both before and after the battle showed that he appreciated cromwell's importance more justly is cromwell there asked rupert of a prisoner taken just before the battle and it was rupert too who after the battle gave cromwell the nickname of ironside or ironsides the title was derived according to a contemporary biographer from the impenetrable strength of his troops which could by no means be broken or divided and it was extended later from the leader to the soldiers themselves cromwell's only account of the battle is contained in a few lines written to his brother-in-law colonel valentine walton england he said and the church of god hath had a great favour from the lord in this great victory given unto us such as the like never was since this war began it had all the evidences of an absolute victory obtained by the lord's blessing upon the godly party principally we never charged but we routed the enemy the left wing which i commanded being our own horse saving a few scots in our rear beat all the prince's horse god made them as stubble to our swords we charged their regiments of foot with our horse and routed all we charged the particulars i cannot relate now but i believe of twenty thousand the prince hath not four thousand left give glory all the glory to god cromwell's letter has been charged with concealing the services of david leslie and the scots but every word of his brief account was true he did not give the particulars of the fight because he was writing a letter of condolence not a dispatch walton's son a captain in cromwell's own regiment had fallen in the battle and cromwell wrote to tell the father details of his son's death he began with the news of the great victory in order that walton might feel that his son's life had not been idly thrown away then he turned suddenly to the real subject of the letter sir god hath taken your eldest son away by a cannon shot it brake his leg we were necessitated to have it cut off 
whereof he died. Next he praised the dead. The gallant young man, exceeding gracious, exceedingly beloved in the army of all that knew him, who had died full of comfort, lamenting nothing, save that he could no longer serve God against his enemies, and rejoicing in his last moments to see the rogues run. In the spring Cromwell had lost his own son, Captain Oliver, who died not in battle, but a smallpox in his quarters at Newport. A civil young gentleman, and the joy of his father, said a newspaper recording it. He referred to this now while seeking to comfort Walton. You know my own trials this way, but the Lord supported me with this, that the Lord took him into the happiness we all pant after and live for. Let the same faith support Walton, and let this public mercy to the Church of God help him to forget his private sorrow. So closed the letter, revealing in its tenderness and sympathy, its enthusiasm and its devotion to the cause, the depths of Cromwell's nature, and the secret of his power over his comrades in arms. After the fall of York, the three parliamentary armies separated. Leven and the Scots turned northwards again to besiege Newcastle. The Fairfaxes remained to capture the royalist strongholds in Yorkshire and Manchester, taking on his way Sheffield Castle and a few smaller garrisons, returned to Lincoln. All August he remained there idle, declining even to besiege Newark. He was weary of the war, anxious for an accommodation with the king, and shocked at the spread of sectarian and democratic opinions in his army and in the kingdom. Cromwell, as the protector of the sectaries, was at daggers drawn with Major General Crawford, who attempted to suppress them. Crawford cashiered an officer on the ground that he was an Anabaptist, and Cromwell and some of his colonels threatened to lay down their commissions unless Crawford was removed. A compromise of some kind was patched up, but Cromwell's influence over Manchester was at an end. Meanwhile, in the south of England, the campaign so prosperously begun was ending in disaster. Charles had turned on his pursuer and defeated Waller at Cropredy Bridge in Oxfordshire on June 29th. Leaving Waller's disorganised and mutinous army too weak to do any harm, he followed Essex into the west, and joined by the forces of the western royalists, threatened to overpower him. At the end of August, the committee of both kingdoms ordered the army of the Eastern Association to go to the succour of Essex. Cromwell was eager to do so. The business, he wrote to his friend Walton, has our hearts with it, and truly, had we wings, we would fly thither. Manchester's army, though ill-provided with necessaries, and slandered by evil tongues as factious, was ready to serve anywhere. We do never find our men so cheerful as when there is work to do. But he went on to hint that there were obstructives in high places who were less willing to fight than their soldiers. We have some amongst us much slow in action. If we could all intend our own ends less, and our own ease too, our business would go on wheels for expedition. Before Manchester stirred from Lincoln, the anticipated disaster came. At Lost Withiel, on September 2nd, Skippen and the infantry of Essex's army were forced to capitulate and to lay down their arms. 
the horse escaped by a night march through a gap in the royalist lines while essex himself and a few officers fled by sea after his victory the king returned slowly to oxford and manchester with the greatest reluctance moved southwest to meet him my army he said openly was raised by the association and for the guard of the association it cannot be commanded by parliament without their consent it was imperative that charles should be fought before he could get to his old headquarters at oxford while his army was weakened by the forces left behind in the west but manchester's refusal to advance allowed the royalists to reach newbury before the king was obliged to fight at newbury on october twenty seventh manchester's army strengthened by waller's forces and by what remained of essex's troops made a joint attack on the king charles had only ten thousand men to oppose to the nineteen thousand brought against him but he had chosen a strong position between two rivers protected on one side by donnington castle and covered where it was most assailable by entrenchments above all his army was under a single commander while the parliaments was directed by a committee essex was absent from illness and the committee of both kingdoms hoped to avoid disputes by putting the command in commission the parliamentary scheme was that skippen's foot with the horse of cromwell and waller should attack the king's position on the west while manchester assaulted it on the northeast it failed through lack of combination skippen's infantry carried the royalist entrenchments and recaptured several guns they had lost in cornwall but the cavalry impeded by the nature of the ground could effect little manchester delayed his attack till it was too late to assist them and was repulsed with heavy loss nevertheless the result of the day's fighting was that the king's position was so seriously compromised that only a retreat could save his army in the night the royalist army silently marched past manchester's outposts and by morning it was halfway to wallingford waller and cromwell set out in pursuit with the bulk of the cavalry but as manchester and the majority of the committee refused to support them with infantry charles made good his retreat to oxford a fortnight later the king reinforced by rupert with five thousand men returned to relieve donnington castle and carry off the artillery he had left there october ninth sixteen forty four he offered battle and cromwell was eager to fight but manchester and the majority of the committee declared against it foot and horse alike were greatly reduced in numbers and the latter tired out with hard duty in such extremity of weather as hath been seldom seen manchester in addition to military reasons urged political arguments against risking a battle if we beat the king ninety-nine times yet he is king still and so will his posterity be after him but if the king beat us once we shall all be hanged and our posterity made slaves my lord retorted cromwell if this be so why did we take up arms at first this is against fighting ever hereafter if so let us make peace be it ever so base but much as he might despise manchester's logic he had to bow to the logic of facts and to accept the view of the committee in general so ended the campaign of sixteen forty four the north of england had been definitely won and with capable leadership 
the defeat of Essex in Cornwall might have been compensated by the defeat of the king in Berkshire. When Cromwell came to reflect on the incidents of the last few months, he attributed the failure to obtain this victory entirely to Manchester. He had failed, apparently, not through accident or want of foresight, but through backwardness to all action. And this backwardness, concluded Cromwell, came from some principle of unwillingness to have the war prosecuted to a full victory, and a desire to have it ended by an accommodation on some such terms to which it might be disadvantageous to bring the king too low. On November 25th, Cromwell rose in the House of Commons, told the story of the Newbury campaign, and made this charge against Manchester. Manchester vindicated his generalship in the House of Lords, alleging that he had always acted by the advice of the Council of War, and that Cromwell was a factious and obstructive subordinate. Then, leaving military questions alone, he made a bitter attack on Cromwell as a politician. He had once given great confidence to the lieutenant-general, but latterly he had become suspicious of his designs and had been obliged to withdraw it. For Cromwell had spoken against the nobility and had said that he hoped to live to see never a nobleman in England. He had expressed himself with contempt against the assembly of divines and with animosity against the Scots for attempting to establish Presbyterianism in England. Finally, he had avowed that he desired to have none but independence in the army of the Eastern Association, so that in case there should be propositions for peace, or any conclusion of a peace, such as might not stand with those ends that honest men should aim at, this army might prevent such a mischief. Cromwell did not deny these utterances, and their revelation produced the effect which Manchester had anticipated. An inquiry into errors in the conduct of the war developed into a political quarrel. The lords took up the cause of Manchester as the cause of their order. The Scots intrigued against Cromwell as the enemy of their creed. For the interest of our nation, wrote Bailey, we must crave reason of that darling of the sectaries, and talked of breaking the power of that potent faction in obtaining his removal from the army which himself by his over-rashness has procured. Some of these Scottish leaders consulted together on the feasibility of accusing Cromwell as an incendiary who had sought to cause strife between the two nations, but the English lawyers consulted advised against it. Lieutenant-General Cromwell, said Mr. Maynard, is a person of great favour and interest with the House of Commons, and with some of the peers likewise, and therefore there must be proofs, and the most clear and evident proofs against him, to prevail with the Parliament to judge him an incendiary. As the controversy proceeded, the lower house declared on Cromwell's side, and the conviction of Manchester's incapacity spread amongst its members. But, instead of pressing the charge home, Cromwell drew back. A personal triumph, to be gained at the cost of a rupture between the two houses, and perhaps a rupture between England and Scotland, was not worth gaining. What he wanted was military efficiency and the vigorous conduct of the war, and he resolved to use the dissatisfaction which Manchester's slackness had roused in order to obtain these ends and to abandon the personal charges to secure them. The moment was propitious, for on November 23rd 
the commons had ordered the committee of both kingdoms to consider the reorganization of the whole army on december ninth when the report on the charges against manchester was brought in to the house of commons cromwell turned the debate to the larger issue the important thing now he said was to save the nation out of the bleeding almost dying condition which the long continuance of the war had brought it into without a more speedy vigorous and effectual prosecution of the war we shall make the kingdom weary of us and make it hate the name of a parliament for what do the enemy say nay what do many say that were friends at the beginning of the parliament even this that the members of both houses have got great places and commands and the sword into their hands and what by interest in parliament what by power in the army will perpetually continue themselves in grandeur and not permit the war speedily to end lest their own power should determine with it if the army be not put into another method and the war more vigorously prosecuted the people can bear the war no longer and will enforce you to a dishonourable peace he went on to abandon his attack upon manchester by recommending the house not to insist upon any complaint against the commander oversights could rarely be avoided in military affairs and he acknowledged that he had been guilty of them himself the essential was not to inquire into the causes of these failures but to apply a remedy to them that remedy as he had already suggested was the reorganization of the army and a change in its commanders and i hope he concluded we have such true english hearts and zealous affections towards the general weal of our mother country as no members of either house will scruple to deny themselves and their own private interests for the public good cromwell's suggestion was at once adopted and before the debate ended a resolution was passed that no member of either house of parliament should during the war hold any office or command either military or civil ten days later on december nineteenth the self-denying ordinance passed the house of commons and was sent up to the lords the lords demurred and delayed and at last rejected it on the ground that they did not know what shape the new army would take the commons immediately formulated their scheme nominated sir thomas fairfax as the future general and fixed the new army at twenty-two thousand men on the fifteenth of february sixteen forty five the lords accepted it much against their will and on april third with a still greater reluctance they accepted a second self-denying ordinance but the new ordinance was much less stringent than the old it simply ordained that all members of the two houses holding office should lay down their commissions within forty days of its passing and said nothing to prevent their reappointment in the future if the two houses thought fit so much at least the peers had gained by their resistance cromwell had been a leader in the earlier portion of this struggle he had been one of the tellers for the majority which voted fairfax general in place of essex and had urged that fairfax should have full liberty in the choice of his officers his own military career seemed over for he could scarcely expect to retain his command when all other members lost theirs if he had sought to keep it he would have continued the prosecution of manchester rather than striven to erect a legal barrier against his own employment but before the struggle ended and before the second self-denying ordinance was passed or even introduced he was once more in the field in the west of england weymouth and taunton were hard pressed by a royalist army under goring waller was ordered to advance and relieve them but without reinforcements he was too weak to do so parliament 
ordered Cromwell's regiment to join Waller. It murmured, grew mutinous, and seemed about to refuse obedience. On March 3rd, the House ordered Cromwell to go with it. Its murmurs ceased, and obedience was immediately restored. Cromwell made no objection to putting himself under Waller's command, and Waller found him an admirable subordinate. There was nothing in his bearing, wrote Waller, to show that he was conscious of having extraordinary abilities, for although he was blunt, he did not bear himself with pride or disdain. As an officer he was obedient, and did never dispute my orders, or argue upon them. What struck Waller most was that whilst a man of few words himself, Cromwell had a way of making others talk, and a singular sagacity in judging their characters and discovering their secrets. Waller's expedition accomplished its object. A royalist regiment of horse was captured, an imperiled body of parliamentary foot successfully brought off, and at the end of April Cromwell returned to headquarters to lay down his commission. It remained to be seen whether Parliament could dispense with his services, and above all whether the army would be content to lose a general who had gained the confidence of the soldiers more than any leader whom the war had produced. End of chapter 6